It's okay to fear. It's okay when you feel small and you're okay right here. I feel like I should be dancing. And it's okay when you feel nothing at all. And it's okay to find out. Hey, welcome. Good morning, everybody. Oh, my gosh. I cannot tell you what it does to my heart to see you all here. And you at home, I know for many of the feet, many of the... Uh, posts that we get in the logins, we see the people from all over the country and all over the world are logging in. So welcome wherever you are, even if you're watching later in the week, just thank you. Thank you for giving up some of your time. You who are here in-house, thank you for coming. And those of you who are at home and wondering if it's time to come meet in-house, yes, it's time. Let's get you back here. Let's start meeting in person again. We've got plenty of room Let's do this. Let's lift up the word of God in this place. I am so excited to teach this message. I can't even tell you. Pastor Gabe said, <laughs> Pastor Gabe said that, that I've got so many notes. And here's the thing. This is only two chapters long. The whole book is two chapters long. Is it wrong that I have more notes than the entire chapter is long? <laughs> it feels wrong, but it feels so right. I am, I am, and here's why. We look at everything that's going on in the world, and I've gotten feedback throughout, especially through the, all the different myriad of crises that we're going through as a nation right now. Why aren't you teaching on current events? Why don't you teach on the exact thing? And, and it's a valid point. But here's what I believe. The Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient to teach us as human beings how to interact, not only with our God, but with one another. And if we know what the Word of God is, and we are obedient to it, and we understand truly what it means, there is no self-help book. There is no book that you can go in and buy off of Amazon or anything that's going to tell you more about how to properly live a Christian life in a world that is in turmoil than the Word of God. Amen, indeed. And there's that saying, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, okay? If we don't understand that everything that has ever happened in the history of mankind is addressed here in the Word of God, then we're doomed to fall into the very same traps that they have for centuries. There's nothing new. Our circumstance individually might be new, some of the things surrounding it, but how to interact with one another and how to maintain your, your godly attitude in the midst of a storm, that is nothing new. People have been dealing with that forever, and this is no different. We are, so last week, Pastor Gabe, thank you for teaching Pastor Gabe last week. Um, I love when Pastor Gabe teaches. You can, I don't know about you, but I can just feel her heart come through when she teaches. She wants, more than anything, she wants you to get the excitement that she gets when she teaches, and that's, that's the same way I feel. You should see some of the conversations we have at home. Most of them end up with, I know, right? That's so cool. Last week, Pastor Gabe taught about Habakkuk, right? I can't, I don't have the, the Hebrew inflection of Habakkuk is how it's pronounced, but she taught on that. This week, we are going into Haggai. Haggai is not often taught on. You don't hear it much, okay? It's part of our Treasar series, the 12, the 12 minor prophets. 
And there couldn't be a teaching in my mind that is more appropriate to everything that's going on. These minor prophets from thousands of years ago address exactly in various ways from various viewpoints the things that we go through every single day. And man, between, so between Habakkuk last week, I know it was only a week in real time, but in, in the space of time, it's 100 years between Habakkuk last week and Haggai this week. Okay, so a lot has happened. Last week we saw uh, from Pastor Gabe's teaching that the Babylonians or the, or the Chaldeans, Chaldeans as it's pronounced sometimes, would be used by God to show the nations their error. God would actually use their enemies to, to teach them a lesson, so to speak. And she quoted Habakkuk 1.6, said, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Okay, that's pretty, in a nutshell, that's who they were. And God used them as an instrument to accomplish just that in so many various ways. We see that, but... Here's why this is a problem right now, okay? The Chaldeans are going to attack Judah, okay? The southern kingdom of Judah. And multiple prophecies throughout time have foretold that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David, okay? And that's where Judah, that that's lineage resided in Judah at that time. If they're taken over and squashed, that's a problem because then prophecy would be wrong. And despite all appearances to the contrary, God is still in charge and has always been. So we worry that if this happens, the line's going to be cut off. That's not something God's worried about. He knows. Now, Habakkuk um, was the last of the what they call the pre-exile or pre-exilic prophets, okay, meaning before the 70-year exile. And... The northern tribes of Israel uh, were already in captivity. They'd been in captivity for a while. And now the southern tribes of Judah follow suit. They are captured. They are conquered. And they follow suit. Judah is conquered, and most of its people are taken away. Not all of them, but most of their people are taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and taken out of the country. 2 Kings 25, 9-12 Reads like this. By the way, I'm going to talk about, Pastor Gabe started last weekend, some companion readings. I'll kind of give you some like, hey, read this chapter if you want to hear more about that. You can read 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 25 if you kind of want to know more about how this all went down. But 2 Kings 25, 9 through 12, says, He burned the house of the Lord. The king, he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar here, right? He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem, literally tearing down the walls. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, okay, traitorous people, we would call them, right? And the rest of the people, Nebuzarian, the captain of the guard, carry away into exile. Okay, some 50,000 plus carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. In other words, he left behind just this ragtag remnant to kind of just take care of the land. If the land was just allowed to just go crazy, it would, it would be of no use to anybody. So they're tending the vines, they're plowing the fields, 
they're, t- they're at least basically taking care of it. So this begins what we call the 70-year captivity period or the 70-year exile of Judah. Now, one of these people who was left behind was a prophet, and his name was Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes prolifically about what it's like to be in this. And you might assume that a prophet of the Lord, okay, left behind in the midst of all his people being taken away and this conquering and this destruction of the temple, they destroyed Solomon's temple. They tore down the walls, all these things that happened. You might think that prophet, the first thing he would do would be to rail against his captors and say, our God is going to smite you and restore us. You would think that you'd be wrong. Let's look at that. This is interesting. God's chosen people were not only taken away into slavery, but they were being told, bless you, they were being told by one of the major prophets of their time, submit to that rule. That is not the way we would look at it today, right? You're being taken over by somebody who is clearly an enemy. They have destroyed your cities. They have destroyed your temples. And guess what? I want you to submit to them. That would be hard for us to wrap our minds around, and it was hard for them to wrap their minds around it there too. But here's what we see, Jeremiah 27.2. I think we have that on screen. Thus says the Lord to me, make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. Now, this is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. Actually, he wants Jeremiah to actually make a wooden yoke like they used for oxen and put it on his neck, and he did that. He literally did that, put on a wooden yoke and walked around. And not only that, but several others did too. Literally walked around as a reminder to the people in the area, those left behind, remember this ragtag group left behind, reminder to submit to that yoke. Jeremiah 27, 6 and 7 goes on to say this, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, The Lord calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. Did you catch that? And this is God's word saying that. God often, often uses antagonists in our lives to correct us and to teach us a lesson when necessary. If we don't listen to his voice, he will find a way to get our attention. Jeremiah then goes on, Jeremiah 27, verses 8 through 11. It will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to be specific, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. Now here's a warning then. But as for you, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you will not serve the king of Babylon. For, the, for they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land. 
declares the Lord, and they will till it and dwell in it. In other words, they're saying there are those among you who are going to tell you what you want to hear. They are going to tell you what you're expecting to hear. Rebel against your captors. Rebel against those pagans who have destroyed the temple. They'll tell you that, but don't listen to them because that is not from God. They'll appeal to your sense of pride, your sense of outrage, and they'll lie to you. We have to be careful because that happens today. Our sense of outrage gets a hold of us, especially when we think it's not right that X is happening or Y is happening. And we let ourselves, our outrage, take over. And we think, I'll take matters into my own hands. The problem is, how many times when we take matters into our own hands, do we get it right? God gets it right every time. When we're told to submit to our rulers, sometimes we just, we just jump ahead and we somehow think that God must be unaware of what we're going through. And so we need to decide for ourselves which authorities we're going to serve, which authorities we're going to listen to, and which authorities we're going to rebel against. When we decide for ourselves, we rarely get it right. But God has and always has promised redemption to those who wait for him. Wait for him. And he says this, Jeremiah 30, 1, 1 through 3, I'll read this one to you. The word, which came, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern kingdom. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Saying, wait, submit. I'm telling you to submit, to wait. My plans and purposes are, you would not understand, but you need to trust my heart. Submit, wait, and when you do, I will restore everything that was lost. Over and over again, this is a theme that God promises us. Now, all that in the background, this sets the scene for the triumphal return then of the people back out of captivity into the promised land, back into their homes. So this week, we continue now, we switch over to Haggai. We look at Haggai. Haggai is the first of the post-exilic prophets. So the last three that we're going to be teaching on are all post-exile. So next week, we'll talk about Zechariah, and then we'll end up uh, with Malachi, and they're all post-exile, so they all have a different message than we've seen in the previous nine weeks. We don't know an awful lot about Haggai. We know a little bit about him from Scripture, not a lot. His name in Hebrew means festal one, which, which means probably that he was born during some kind of a feast, right? Because typically the name is a picture of who you are. Or maybe he, was, maybe he looked like he attended a lot of feasts. I'm not sure about that, but that's what his name means. He's quoted in the New Testament. He's really only quoted one time, and that's in the book of Hebrews where he's quoted, uh, but he's referred to by uh, many other Old Testament prophets. He is at least, at this time of this writing, he's at least 70 years old, so he's an older man for sure, and we know this because he had personally seen Solomon's temple before it had been destroyed. And then they went into captivity for 70 years. 
So he had seen that. So he's at least 70 years old. He remembers. So think about this. He's spent almost his entire life in captivity under the Babylonians. And we also know this, Haggai, when he comes back, his entire prophecy spans only about a four-month time period from start to stop. He's, he's very to the point for that time and place. So here's a question for all of you, you at home, you scholars here in the room. Why is Haggai's prophecy different than most of the other prophecies that you see in the Bible? What's that? It is very pointed, very direct. Again, four-month four time span. Here's the biggest difference. This time, the people listen. This time, the people listen, and they don't go back to their ways. They are actually able to have revival based on this word and move forward. That's different than it has been. And I've been sharing with you the Cliff's Notes version. Remember the short version? Here it is. Haggai promises to a people who should be overcome by gratitude, okay? He sh they should be so overcome by gratitude, but instead, they set out to make themselves comfortable at the expense of neglecting God's temple. But God is merciful and gracious, so when he stirs their heart to repentance and they respond with a renewed passion for him, he gives them a glimpse of the ultimate prize to come, which is something that they could never comprehend, so that's the Cliff's Notes version. If you want to tune out and go and mow the lawn at home, you feel free to do that. Come back, though, and check out the rest of this because this is some good stuff. Let's get into some background on this book. So Cyrus the Great, okay, he's the emperor of Persia. He has, he has conquered Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. But he took over those all the captives, basically, as plunder as his prize. But Cyrus the Great released the Hebrews back in 538 B.C. He released them to go back home. Go back home. Not only go back home, but go back with my blessing. Do you remember why? I didn't, to go back home to build the wall, but why did he release it? He's, this is their prize, their plunder and, and enemies. They're no friends of his. Why did he release them to go back home? Remember, it was a prophet named Daniel who was also one of the captives there, who had a word for Cyrus. That word for Cyrus, which Cyrus, in his wisdom, okay, listened to. said, I'll listen to anybody that wants to give me some, some words and some wisdom. Read Daniel chapter 10 if you want to see what's going on there. But Daniel, again, a Jewish prophet and a captive, tells Cyrus of a 150-year-old prophecy from Isaiah. Remember that teaching that specifically mentions Cyrus by name. This prophecy was a generation before Cyrus was even born. Isaiah 45, 13, we've got it on the screen. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So this, we would be tempted, or sometimes people are tempted to think, oh, Cyrus, this is a different Cyrus. Can't possibly be that Cyrus, the Persian Cyrus. But no other Cyrus would have the authority to rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Cyrus hears this, and Cyrus says, yes, not only will I set you free, but I'm going to pay to have you rebuild my temple, or your temple. 
It's amazing. He financed that. And this, this has continued with Cyrus's son, Darius. Now, about 50,000 exiles or so, give or take, returned back to their homeland, complete with funding that went with them to rebuild the temple. So what's the first thing they do? Wait about two years to start rebuilding the temple. Now, Zerubbabel, name we'll talk about here in a moment, is placed as governor by Cyrus. Can't be king, okay, because Cyrus is still in control. So he places Zerubbabel there and makes him, he calls him governor. So he's kind of governor. Essentially functions as the king of the area, but he's a governor. Joshua is elected as the high priest. They arrive back to their homeland in 538 B.C. and immediately probably start tending back to, I'm going to go back to my house. It's been empty and overgrown for 70 years, our ancestral home. I'm going to start rebuilding the land. I'm going to start fixing the houses up. So they start that. About two years later, they actually jump in and start work on the temple. Okay, So they do start work on the temple. And the first thing that happens when they start this, their neighbors start, by neighbors, I mean the antagonistic neighboring nations around them, start coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, we want to help too. We want to help. Why would they want to do that? For a couple reasons, okay? They see that God has favored these people to the point where not only are they released, but the king that that owned them is funding to rebuild their city and their temple. We want in on that. So they come to him. And this is from Ezra, the book of Ezra. So you can read Ezra. It talks about this a lot. Chapter 4. Ezra 4, 1 to 2 says, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, that's the southern tribe, heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Urshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Now, these enemy, for the most part, these were Samaritans who were left over in the northern kingdom. Okay? Another remnant that was left behind when they were taken away into exile. So they did know God, but here's the thing. They worshipped anybody. They not only worshiped the God of Israel, but they worshiped all these false idols and all these different gods from all the neighboring countries, and they just said, hey, we want in on that too. Their offer was immediately rebuffed by Zerubbabel and Joshua. They were the ones who had been authorized and charged by Cyrus. They were the chosen ones receiving the blessing to go back home, and they wanted to hang on to that for themselves. So the result is this, Ezra 4.4 on the screen here. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all of the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they start out with Cyrus still, and then Darius takes over later. And what's happening here is that they are using their neighbors who have been told, nah, we got this. We'll rebuild it ourselves. We don't want your help. They decided, well, then what we're going to do is we're just going to frustrate you building all the ways that we can. So they do things like they attack the supply lines. When people are going out to gather supplies and things, they attack that. They attack the, uh, um, I don't know how it came by horse or whatever. When the money was coming in from Cyrus, they would attack that and actually rob that supply chain. They would do anything that they could 
to, to frustrate this attempt at revival. And we see this all the time when God starts a revival in our hearts. The enemy immediately comes at you with anything that he can to frustrate that attempt. And it's hard to hang on to that fervor and that zeal and persevere, right? Sometimes you say, it's just easier to not deal with all the opposition. And that kills that fire in our heart for revival. And that's no different this time. It works. The Samaritans disrupt the supply lines, threaten workers, hijack the funds coming in from Persia. Ezra 4.24 says, Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Again, read Ezra 4 if you want to. For a 16-year time period, nothing happens until... Okay, so they, they, they come back, they wait two years, they start a little bit of work, and they find it's frustrating, it's hard, and then they just stop. 16 years it sits idle. This is where we pick up Haggai. Haggai 1.1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, nope, that's it, saying to be continued. Hang on, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. This, is, this translates, by the way, to August 29th, 520 B.C., very specific on the dates. One of the things to note that's interesting here is they're talking about in the second year of Darius. Normally, they talk about dates by Hebrew kings, right? But there is no Hebrew king. At this time. So, in order to make sure that they're accurate in their timing of history, they actually use a Persian king as their, as their date stamp. Let's talk for a second about Zerubbabel. Who is Zerubbabel? Where did he come from? Why was, why was he the one that was chosen by Cyrus? First of all, he was born in Babylon to Jewish parents who were captive. So he was born straight into captivity. That's all he knew is he was born into captivity. It says he's the son of Sheltil, and we don't know really anything about him, but that separates him from other Zerubbabels that are out there. But more importantly, he's the grandson of Jehoiachin, which I'm totally not pronouncing that right, but that's what I'm going with, the last legitimate king of Judah before they were taken into captivity. Okay, so his grandfather, Zerubbabel's grandfather, was this Jehoiachin. And here's an interesting thing about this. Somehow or another, this king that had been taken found favor with Cyrus. Found an unusual amount of favor, so much so that 2 Kings 25, <coughs> excuse me, 2 Kings 25, 29 says this. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. In other words, Cyrus said, you know what, uh, you don't need to dress as a prisoner. You don't need to act as a prisoner. Come and eat at my table. That is an unheard of amount of favor. But here's what I imagine in my mind. Scripture does not record this. Um, Jewish tradition does not record this. So this is not thus saith the Lord or thus saith Scripture. But I picture Jehoiachin's grandson. He's having dinner, breakfast, lunch, dinner at the table of the king Cyrus. And it would not be hard to imagine his little grandson, Zerubbabel, 
coming in and jumping up on Papa's lap and sitting there and, and eating or playing around at the table. Cyrus would have known who this Zerubbabel was and would have watched him grow up. So when it came time for him to choose somebody to be placed as governor to go back into Judah, it might have been natural, or was it supernatural, that Cyrus would name him as governor. So this is where Zerubbabel comes from. Let's go back now to the words of the prophet. Haggai 1-2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So they're, they're, the people are saying, it's not time yet. I know, I know what we were sent here. I know we had funding, but it's just not time yet. And I'm sure they thought that there were all kinds of legitimate reasons for them to not continue working on the temple, right? I'm sure there were. Their homes were in 70 years' worth of disrepair. The fields and the land and the crops, for the most part, 70 years of neglect, um, their work was hard. They were being harassed. They didn't have an awful lot of money or manpower left over because a lot of the funds that came in were being misused. They remembered these easier times in Babylon, and even though they were in captivity, some of them fondly looked back and said, man, it wasn't quite so hard then. Does that sound like maybe some Hebrews grumbling about leaving captivity in Egypt? Time and time again, when God sets us free, we look back at our captivity and go, oh, man, it was so much easier then. Why do we do that as a people? We do it over and over again. Again, nothing new. Haggai 1, 3 through 4, 3 and 4, reads like this. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house Lies desolate. It's a rhetorical question. They're taking the wood that had been farmed and brought down and milled for the temple and using it to panel their houses. It was a sign of wealth and opulence. You know, the houses, for the most part, were just made of rock, right? rock or mud. And to panel them with wood was you had something. And they were taking these, these cedar panels specifically meant for the temple, and they were using them in their homes. But they're reminded immediately. They're reminded that everything that we do is in vain unless it's by God's direction. And this is Haggai 1, 5, and 6. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much but harvested little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. They're getting by, but they are not prospering, which is what God wants for them. And so they're immediately commanded, go back. I want you to go back and resume work on the temple. Haggai 1, 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Haggai 1.9, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, why each one of you runs to your own house. You're spending all this time getting your own house in order What about my house? 
Reminds me of Psalm 127. Remember, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain. So as I said earlier, this time, they actually listen to this command. They listen, and they start to catch fire in their hearts. Haggai 1.12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. They start catching this fire. We would call it a revival today. They start getting this fire again. And seeing their repentance, seeing this renewed zeal for the things of God, God encourages them. Haggai 1.13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. Look at those words. I am with you. With you, declares the Lord. Is there anything more that we could need or want to hear in our hearts? I am with you. This is where we are. Now, this is a little snapshot of some sound theology here. When they come back from exile 18 years ago at this point, they were full of excitement and enthusiasm to build the temple. They had been paid, funded to go do it. But who told them at that point to do it? Cyrus. Cyrus said, go back. I'll even pay you to rebuild the temple. They did this because they had the money. The temple had been destroyed. Cyrus set them free. It seemed like the thing to do. But it wasn't God's will at that time. And so their zeal, their fervor, their excitement for doing this, their enthusiasm quickly waned. As soon as the road became difficult, they just said, eh, Maybe later. If we do things, hear this, if we do things just simply based on our enthusiasm and what seems right, as soon as that road gets hard, we will be tempted easily to set that aside. But here's what happens with them. God stirs their passion. Listen to this, Haggai 1.14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So who stirred up the spirit? God stirred up the spirit. He is the one that stirred the spirit in their hearts. And so when we're looking at a task that we're faced with or even a choice between things, our prayer should be this, God, stir my spirit. Stir my spirit for the excitement for the things that you want, the things that please you. That stirring along with then our obedience, we can overcome any obstacle. And it's not based on enthusiasm. So chapter 2 now opens a month and a half later, and the construction is in full swing. Construction is, is fully going. And another word then now comes to Haggai. Haggai 2, 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Remember, this construction has been going on. It's full swing. And the Lord says, who saw it in its former glory? And how do you now see it? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Who that would hurt. Who saw how amazingly glorious Solomon's temple was and now what you're building? How do they compare? It seems like something that would be discouraging to them, right? 
And they were. They were becoming discouraged because there were those who had seen it, okay, Haggai being one of them, and, and this is nothing like. This is nice, but it is nothing like Solomon's temple, and they start to become discouraged. I have an image here, just a kind of a drawing based on the descriptions of Solomon's temple. It's a cutaway image, of course, a reflecting pool all made of gold out in front, Okay, gold columns, the gold floor, the walls. This was an amazing, amazing temple that Solomon had built. Nothing ever seen like it. And there's much more modest. Much, much more modest. Still a place fit for the, for the Lord, but it was much more modest. And they were following into, the, following into this comparison trap. These comparisons are rarely, rarely ever fruitful. And here's the thing. No matter what your offering to the Lord looks like, if he says, I am with you, that's all you need to hear. We fall into comparisons, and it stops us from pursuing the things of God because ours can't possibly measure up to what we see around us. Now, God has heard these complaints, and he, and he encourages them. Haggai 2.4, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, son of Joshua. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you. Okay, so they might have heard I am with you and just thought in their minds, this means God's on our side. That's probably what they would have thought of. But what this is, is a glimpse of something so much greater to come because of their faithfulness, because of their heart and their renewed passion for the things of God. Haggai 2.5, as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, reminding them of that exodus from Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Now, during the exodus, as they were traveling 40 years throughout the desert, where was God's spirit then? Where was his house? It was in the tabernacle, this, this portable tent structure, nice, but his portable structure that was taken, and that's where God's temple was. Now, in this time that we see, God's presence is in the temple. But there's an even better promise to come. Haggai 2, 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Trust me, whatever you see, it's going to be better than anything you've ever seen before, no matter how amazing that was. And in this place, I will give you peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this temple, this one that they're building, even though slightly more modest, will stand for 500 years. It stood for 500 years. Ultimately, it's the very temple that Jesus worshiped in. Jesus taught in that temple. Remember? Talk about glory of a place. But for now, for now, real time in here in this teaching, the temple work is complete. The people, again, will worship there. God gives Haggai a warning now that is, is a little bit, it seems like it kind of doesn't fit in the middle of all this. He gives him this warning, and you can read the chapter. Again, it's only two chapters. Read it. He gives them a warning that it's not ceremony that makes them clean. It's not the temple itself that's going to make them clean. It's what's in their heart that matters. 
And again, this is a glimpse of how much we need Jesus to make sure that our heart is a temple that's fit for a king. My study Bible paraphrases that whole, it's, it's about a paragraph, paraphrases it like this. Sin is contagious, holiness is not. I love that paraphrase. So, moving on, God continues his message through the prophet with a specific word now, specific word, it closes out with a word for Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the governor. Haggai, chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Okay, remember, signet ring was the ring that kings would wear in order to stamp their seal on, on documents and different things. It was a sign of royalty. If you had the signet ring, you, you were royalty and you were in power. Now remember, Earlier, when I talked about Cyrus randomly, air quotes, choosing Zerubbabel to be governor, here's how God works in his providence. Prophecy had foretold, remember, that the Messiah would come through that lineage of David. Well, Zerubbabel's grandfather, okay, was the last of that lineage of David, so now Zerubbabel, the last king that was, that was, that was a leader of that lineage of David. In the ancestry of Jesus, if we look back, Zerubbabel was the last person to stand in both the bloodline of Mary. You can read about that in Luke 3. And also of Joseph, the legal lineage through Joseph. That's in Matthew 1. Here's the thing, when God makes a promise and he says, my line will continue through you, through David, when he makes a prophecy, that's a promise, and he will make sure that it happens. So, all right, so we need to wrap this up. Man, I'm so far over my time, but hopefully you guys are still with me. Still with me, we're wrapping this up. When I'm praying about how to wrap this up, how to conclude this message, two chapters, and I could not wrap my mind around all the different things that are going on in here. So I had to pray, Lord, show me. And what he showed me is, why does it just have to be one thing? We've got several things. Here's the first one. When God says, I am with you, you can do anything. When God says, I am with you, you can do anything. When we do things just because it's a good idea, seems right, our enthusiasm can quickly fade. Second, what is it that keeps you from tending to the things of God as a priority in your life? We see this happening with them. Misprioritizing your resources, thinking, I'm too busy now. There'll always be time later. There's a better time. I got a lot going on. I got a lot on my plate right now. Is it maybe the fear that you fall into this comparison trap? Like, I I can't do as much or offer as much as they had before or my neighbor. And then the next thing, the third thing, God can and will use anyone to accomplish his purposes, even those who are antagonistic towards us, who are outright our enemies. 
God can and will use them to accomplish his purposes. And if we trust him, and my favorite saying is, don't be a part of the problem. God will take care of it if we don't mess it up. But here's my main takeaway. Here's the thing that God really spoke to my heart. God's desire was always to be with his people, but we know through the original sin going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, sin has kept him at a distance. But he always wanted to be with his people. God is a God of justice and mercy, but he's also a God of order. He created the universe out of chaos and ordered it. He is an orderly God, and he left very specific instructions as how the temple was to be constructed, how it was to be kept up, how worship was supposed to happen, very, very detailed instructions on how this was to work. It wasn't just whatever felt good to you at the time, and only the high priest could even hope to get it right. Here, though, in this this teaching, we see that the temple of God is in shambles, and it didn't seem to bother them. They walked by working on their own houses and watched the temple just lay in ruins, thinking there'd be a better time. Here's the thing, though. Today, where's the temple of God? Where is the temple of God today? It is in us. It's not a trick question. It's in us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. You are the temple of God. What's the condition of God's temple in you? Does it lie in ruins? Is it in need of some repair? Maybe a little remodeling? Does the foundation need shored up just a little bit? Is the temple of God in you a home fit for a king? That's my question. So what do we do? What do we do in order to make sure the temple of God in you is fit for a king? Here's what I found. Go back and read the instruction manual. The very specific instructions. It looks a lot like this book right here the instructions that God gave us and how to interact with him, how to interact with each other. And then pray to the Holy Spirit on how to put those words into action. And then lastly, thank Jesus that the Spirit of God now dwells in you and that you are holy and clean through what Jesus did. Let's pray. Hey, worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. Sending Jesus to make us holy and clean is the only way that we would ever be a home suited for a king. The temple of God now resides in us, and it's only through the work of Jesus Christ that that we can stand as worthy. So, Father, we thank you for everything that you have done. We thank you for your word as a direction for our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'd like to take communion with us, grab your elements wherever you are. If you're here in-house, they're at the table back there. I know they're hard to open sometimes if you have one of the little self-serves. But let's do this.
Let's all share in the body of Christ because we are the body of Christ. All of us are a part of that body and by partaking in the symbolic body of Christ, we are aligning ourselves with the atoning work that he did for us on the cross. Take the bread. And the blood of Christ is the blood of the new covenant. We see in here the teaching of the covenant that I will be with them. They will be my people. And we, when that was written, we had no, no way to know that not only would he reside in our presence near us, that he would place his spirit in us. And so it's the blood of the new covenant with which we share that. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Amen. Thank you, guys.